John chapter 10, our topic, the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And we're going to be looking at verse uh, 11 today, and uh, it's going to be a, a very theological sermon, because we're going to be discussing the, last week we had a traditional gospel sermon, and this week we're going to get into the why. We're going to get into what is the actual meaning of the uh, death of Christ and so forth. So, uh, But let me read some of this here. The verse, starting at verse 7, that Jesus said to them again, And most surely I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. <coughs> the thief does not come except to, to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And here's our text, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling who does not, who is not the shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and flees the sheep, uh, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is the hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay my life down, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received of my Father. Our Lord's teaching continues. Jesus' self-revelation of himself and his mission becomes deeper and broader, his teaching. He is not simply a shepherd or a leader of his people. He is the good shepherd. He does not simply guide, teach, protect, and nurture the sheep, but he dies for them so they can have life. And we're talking about spiritual life, eternal life. There are two major teachings in verse 11 that merit close attention. First, what does Jesus mean by the good shepherd? Then, second, why does he lay down his life for the sheep? What's the purpose of it? What's the meaning of it? Well, let's look at the good shepherd first. <clears throat> Before Christ speaks of his vicarious death, he identifies himself as the one and only good shepherd. And he does this in a few ways. First, he begins with the special use of I am, ego eimi in Greek, which in John's gospel is always used by our Lord only for solemnly emphatic statements. In Greek, you don't need, you can have the verb and it, it, it means I am. But when you put I am, when you state it, it makes it especially emphatic. Scholars place the I am declarations in a class of all their own. In John's Gospel, Jesus' use of I am, ego and me, is also a, a discreet way of speaking of his divinity. Remember the passage, uh, before Abraham was, I am, and then the Jews took up stones because he declared himself to be God. Our Lord deliberately identifies himself with the angel of Yahweh, 
who spoke to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.2, who is identified by the text as God himself in Exodus 3.4. Second, the grammar used here, the Greek grammar, is also emphatic. <coughs> Placing Jesus in a class by himself. And this is done by using the article twice. It literally says in Greek, I am the shepherd, the good one. Note the article twice. He's not merely a shepherd, he is the shepherd with capital letters. Our Lord is not merely one shepherd among many in a class of shepherds, but he is the good shepherd who stands alone both in his person, both in his person and in his purpose. He is the good shepherd. The word for, the adjective, kalos, the word for good, excuse me, the adjective kalos, refers not simply to ethical goodness and benevolence, but also beauty and excellence. There's another word for good that's more like our English word good. This, this good word for good is broader than our, than our word. And it is usually used for things like beauty and excellence. Jesus is the uniquely good shepherd. And he stands alone both in his character and in his work. He is supremely good and excellent with a goodness or excellence all his own. With our Lord's use of I am, the double article, with the article both before shepherd and the adjective good, Christ identifies himself as both God and man who has come as the unique and only leader, savior, protector of God's people. So it sounds very simple in English, but as John's gospel often is, it's actually very deep. And then let's look at the second major thing in our, our verse here. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. After speaking of his person, Jesus goes on to describe his purpose or mission. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now here Christ shifts from metaphor to explicit teaching about his coming sacrificial death. The statement is not a mere analogy for although a real shepherd may risk his life for the sheep and may become injured, good shepherds don't die for their sheep. If a shepherd died defending his sheep, this would soon lead to the death of the sheep. For he's their only defense. Predators would attack them if he died, and they would kill the sheep. That's why analogies or illustrations, uh, they're, they're not always perfect. And, and Jesus, is this, Jesus is using this in a unique way. But in the case of Jesus and his voluntary sacrifice, the result is the salvation or eternal life for the sheep. The only way to save the sheep is to die for the sheep. Now, this reference regarding his death for the sheep is exceptionally important and occurs four times. Verse 11, 15, 17, and 18 in this narrative. 
And this expression has an Old Testament background. For example, Isaiah 53.10. You make his soul or life an offering for sin. And in the Greek, in the text, the word for soul is used, which we translate life. And by the way, this does not, this kind of language does not occur in any of the ancient literature. It's completely unique to the New Testament. We don't find any of this in the Greek papyri, in any of the ancient Greek writings. It is a distinctly Christian concept. Jesus came to shed his blood to save his sheep. Our Lord's focus, especially as the cross approached, was to inform his disciples about his own atoning death. This is the doctrine of vicarious atonement, which is at the very heart of the Christian gospel. And this is something we all need to know very clearly by heart. If one does not understand this doctrine and sincerely believe it, then one is not a Christian. One cannot be a Christian without understanding this and believing it. And one is damned uh, to die in his sins. <clears throat> now, before we continue, let me just define these terms, because these are words we don't often hear. And I, when I was an evangelical, and the, the minister would talk about atonement, uh, they would never define the word correctly. <laughs> uh, so let's define a few words. The word vicarious means a person endures a penalty or liability of punishment or suffering in the place of another. So vicarious atonement. Jesus died for his sheep. He died for another. The term atonement is the English translation of the Hebrew word kippur. You've heard the word Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that's used in the KJV, uh, the New King James, the RSV, the NIV, the ASV, the NESV, etc. The Jewish Translation Society translates the word as expiation. Now, most commentators and theologians believe the word means to cover over, in the sense that the blood of the sacrifice covers the guilt of the sinner. And this view is derived from the Arabic root, the meaning of which is to cover or conceal, and possibly from kapar in Genesis 6.14, which means to cover over with pitch. The ark was to be covered with pitch. It covered the wood so the wood would not get waterlogged being in the ocean or being in the, the waters for a long period of time. Shed writes, the suffering of the substitute bullock or ram has the effect to cover over the guilt of the real criminal and makes it invisible to the eye of God, the holy. End of quote. Now, many modern Hebrew scholars reject the meaning of covering, and they believe that it probably is derived from the Akkadian verb kipiru, which means to cleanse or wipe. And this view fits very well with the fact that the sacrificial blood is often associated in Scripture with cleansing and purification. So both root meanings fit perfectly with the Hebrew. Others argue that the root kapar is derived from koper, which means a ransom price. And the great Hebrew scholar Wenham writes, Kipper, to make atonement, then could be literally translated to pay a ransom for one's life. In certain passages where various monetary payments are said to make atonement, to pay a ransom would seem to be a much more appropriate rending than to cleanse. For example, Exodus 30.15 and Numbers 31.50. <coughs> Such an understanding is compatible 
with most of the passages which speak of making atonement for someone. Through the animal's death and subsequent rituals, men are ransomed from death that their sin and uncleanness merit. End of quote. So all three words fit perfectly, as we'll see in a moment. Christ's sacrifice covers over sin. The blood of the, on the Day of the Atonement, the sacrificial animal's blood was taken by the high priest into the Holy of Holies and was sprinkled upon the mercy seat, causing an interposition, a covering between the violated law of God contained in the, mercy, contained in the Ark of the Covenant and the special Shekinah divine presence that hovered above the seat, hiding the sins from God, covering the sins before God. And then, of course, in the Psalms, in many places, we talk about the blood of Christ cleansing from sin. And then, of course, we'll, it's also Christ redeems us. He pays the price. Whether one argues that Kippur refers to a covering over the guilt of sin, <clears throat> though obviously not in the modern pejorative sense, or the washing of, or cleansing of sin, or a ransom which pays for sin, or even all of the above, depending on the context, the central idea of expiation is the same. <clears throat> the guilt of sin is removed. And I think that's why the, the Jewish scholars who translated the Jewish translation of the Old Testament use the word expiation. Now, in, the, in this verse, all the elements of vicarious atonement are present. He gives his life. The word give is better translated lays down. Jesus lays aside his own life <clears throat> as a man lays aside his, aside his clothes. The same verb, uh, tithimi, is used in John 13, 4, where Christ rose from the supper and laid aside, same verb, his garments. The fact that our Lord lays down his life indicates that his suffering and death on behalf of his people was a voluntary act. Christ didn't have to come and die for his people. God did that, we're told in John 3.16, because of his great love. And we're told that Christ loved us and died for us while we were still sinners. So the motivating factor is God's love. But once God decided to save a people for himself, there was only one way it could be done where God would remain just and be the justifier of people who are sinners and guilty, and that's the blood of Christ. The unbelieving Jewish authorities and Romans tortured and crucified him only because he allowed it. His death was not a co cosmic accident or because the Jews or Romans had power over him, and this point is made clear in verses 17 and 18 where Jesus says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. An obvious reference to the resurrection. He lays it down voluntarily and then he, of his own power, rises from the dead. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. Something only God could say. Moreover, during his arrest, he said this. This is after, now it's the disciple who did this is not identified, but most scholars think it's Peter. Put your sword in its place. Do you, do you not think that I could now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? 
That's several thousand angels. Now, keep in mind, one angel killed 200,000 Assyrians in one day. And this point is crucial for the book of Hebrews, 627, 14-27, <coughs> teaches that Jesus is a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's Hebrews 10, 12, and 14. He was the high priest who offered himself to God on the cross. So when he says, I lay it down, he's even the priest. He serves as the high priest who offers himself to God on the cross. The, the treachery of Judas, the armband of the priest's servants, the enmity of scribes and Pharisees, the torturous and root, uh, brutal hands of the Roman soldiers, the scourge, the nails, the spear, all of these could not have harmed a hair of our Lord's head unless he had allowed them to do it. So he offers himself. And of course, the passage emphasizes it's a once-for-all act. The Roman Catholic Mass, where he's supposedly re-sacrificed every week, is blasphemous. The teaching propagated by theological liberals. That Jesus was just another rabbi that died because of his political views. And then later on, his disciples made up his divinity and resurrection in order to keep his teachings alive is satanic nonsense and completely contradicts the whole Bible. Scripture makes it perfectly clear that he came to earth, assumed a human nature, died on the cross, and rose from the dead in order to save his people, his sheep, the elect. And when you get a chance, look at Philippians 2, 5-11. So Christ did not die as a mere example. He did not die as a martyr. He did not die to confirm the truth of his teachings. He died as a sacrifice, a bloody sin offering in the place of his people to eliminate the guilt and penalty of their sins. Now Jesus dies for the sheep. The preposition used here, Hooper, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Huper, H-U-P-E-R, has a somewhat broad range of meaning and can only be determined by the narrow and broad context of the passage. The preposition for in Greek and in English has the general sense of for the benefit of. I mowed the lawn for Bob. I mowed the lawn for the benefit of Bob. But in passages that speak about the death of Christ, it also carries the meaning of in the place of and denotes substitution. Okay, there's that word again, vicarious. He died in our place. It is indeed possible that New Testament authors employed the preposition hooper to convey both ideas. He died for us, for our benefit, but he also died in our place that this preposition focuses our attention on Jesus' vicarious or substitutionary death can be proved by the following considerations. And I say this is, this is another doctrine that the liberals or modernists deny. They don't believe it's substitutionary at all. In fact, uh, there's sermons by liberals where they say, we're talking about liberal professing Christians, they're not Christians at all, and they're certainly not liberal, uh, that Jesus, if God had Jesus die for sin, then that would be child abuse. Well, that's blasphemous nonsense and complete ignorance. First, 
the Old Testament teaches us how to define the word. Jesus is teaching and the background for these concepts comes from the Old Testament. The Old Testament sacrificial system and prophecy, such as Isaiah 53, proves that Jesus died in the place of his people, and thus their sin, guilt, and liability of punishment was eliminated by Christ on the cross. <clears throat> in the purification offering, a person would place their hand on the head of the goat, symbolizing the placing of the sin on the sacrificial victim, Leviticus 4.24. In Leviticus 1 to 3, the imputation of sin from the guilty to the innocent victim is made crystal clear. Here's Leviticus 1, 3 to 4. If his offering is a burnt offering of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put, and the Hebrew literally means to press upon, he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted on behalf to make atonement for him. <coughs> the symbol of the pressing of the hand on the sacrificial victim indicates both substitution, the clean animal will suffer and die in the sinner's place, and the transfer or imputation of guilt or liability of punishment to the animal. And this interpretation is decisively confirmed by Leviticus 16.21. And Aaron, he's the high priest, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The removal of sin to the innocent victim. Here's what Moorhead writes. Quote, Most specific and definite is the language touching this remarkable scene. The high priest laid both of his hand, hands on the goat's head. And the other sacrifices where a single individual performed this act, it was his hand, one hand, that made the transfer. But here both hands were employed. The hands that had been filled with incense that carried the blood into the divine presence are now filled with the sins, iniquities, and transgressions of the congregation. And those hands put them on the head of the victim. Substitution and imputation cannot be more vividly expressed. Now, the whole point of the sin offering, of the various sin offerings, was that the innocent victim paid the price in the place of the sinner. Everything in the Old Testament pointed us to Christ. And the whole point of the sacrificial system was to point the Jews to the coming of Christ, who offered the perfect once-for-all sacrifices, sacrifice never to be repeated, it says in Hebrews, the blood of animals can't really forgive sin. They were types that pointed to Christ. They were ceremonies that taught the people about the coming Messiah. The blood of the sacrifices symbolizes and pointed people to the blood of Christ who cleanses from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. The saints in heaven are those, Revelation 7, 14, who have washed their robes and made them white 
in the blood of the Lamb. And Isaiah 53.10, the offering of Jesus' life, our soul for sin, justifies many, verse 11. He bore the sin of many, verse 12. He bore their guilt and liability of punishment. And that is how God can take a sinner and get him into heaven and give him eternal life. God doesn't overlook sin. God doesn't pretend it doesn't exist. God doesn't simply delete it, which is what the Jews and Muslims teach, which is complete heresy. I have a, a tape series. Well, I used to have a tape series. I can't find it. By a Jewish apologist. He was the Jewish version of Greg Bonson. He'd go around the country debating Christians and trying to refute Christianity. And he said, oh, the offering of sacrifices is not important. What's important is repentance and obeying the law. And what he did was he took those passages where the Jews were being rebuked for uh, leading gross lives of gross immorality, but still offering the sacrifices. And God says, look, I don't want you, if you're not going to repent and believe, the, the sacrifices don't do anything. But Jews have to explain why they don't have a temple, why they're not offering sacrifices. They have no atonement for their sin. So they have a crass works religion, no better than Romanism. Second, <clears throat> the ancient Greek papyri, discovered by archaeologists, and this is places like Alexandria, and they found all these papyri, and that, that's, you know, paper made out of the papyrus plant, which is extremely strong paper, and uh, they found bunches of these, in, they were in jars, which preserve them, uh, has demonstrated that the use of hy uh, hyper, huper, as in the place of, or as a representative, is perfectly normal. Scribes would write a document in behalf of someone who was unlettered. They took their place and wrote instead of the illiterate person. Third, the preposition anti, A-N-T-I, is also used in connection with Jesus' death, and this word means literally in the place of, or in exchange for. It's uh, more explicit and definite. Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be saved, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, this is, this is the preposition anti, many. Matthew 20, 28, see Mark 10, 45. The same word is used in Matthew 5, 38. An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. An eye in exchange for an eye, and a tooth in exchange for a tooth. It is also used in Matthew 2.22, where it says that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod. So the modernist view that denies Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice is obviously unscriptural. They're simply following secular humanism, and human philosophies, and have rejected the word of God, the word of the living God. And then fourth, there are many passages that speak explicitly of our Lord's sacrificial death as an atoning death. <clears throat> Here's a few from Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 4, 5, 6, and 12. <clears throat> he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore the sin of many. Can't get any clearer than that. 
the Jews prior to the coming of Christ, there were many Jewish scholars who said this refers to the coming Messiah. And in some sense, he was to bear the sins of the nation. Uh, after the coming of Christ, the Jews rejected that view, and now they teach that Israel suffers for mankind in some sense, which is just blasphemous nonsense. Here's another one, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.21-24. Christ also suffered for us, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. And he's quoting Isaiah 53. Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And it goes on to explain that he had to hang on a tree, the cross, to do that. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15.3. Christ was offered to bear the sins of many. Excuse me, that's Hebrews 9.28. 1 Corinthians 15.3. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In Galatians 1, 3-4, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. Luke 22, 19-20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ also suffered the just for the unjust. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You can't find a better passage that eliminates this idea of salvation by works. We were still sinners when he died for us. We were his enemies. Romans 8.32 He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And then a wonderful passage from Colossians 2.13-14 And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart, he has made alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out, there's a concept of washing, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So, how come you don't have sin? How come when you, on the day of judgment, you can, God will look at you and see the righteousness of Christ? Because Christ eliminated all your sin and guilt at the cross. And of course, he imputes his perfect righteousness unto you. God sees the righteousness of Christ. The guilt and curse of the law is blotted out, therefore all transgressions are forgiven. Why? Because all the guilt and liability of punishment was imputed to Christ on the cross. All of it. It is because of the substitutionary nature of Jesus' bloody sacrifice that believers' guilt and penalty is removed. He paid the price, redemption, so that we are freed of the debt or record of sin. Now, to understand Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, we must understand the biblical idea of imputation. It's a word every Christian should know, and most do not know. All of the believer's guilt, his record of sin, and liability of punishment, his obligation to suffer the curse of the law, is something objective that is reckoned at Jesus' account on the cross. Your guilty record, every sin, Every penalty of hell that you deserve is placed on Christ on the cross. Thus, Peter could say, He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. I forgot to write down the passage. This does not mean that Christ became a sinner or a wicked person actually in his own person. 
That's the heresy taught by Kenneth Hagin and Kenneth Copeland and their followers. They teach that Christ actually became a real sinner and descended into hell, literal hell, which is blasphemous nonsense. For such teaching would contradict the many passages which teach that Christ was sinless and ethically perfect. John 8.46, Hebrews 4.15, 7.26, 1 John 3.5, 1 Peter 1.19, and 2.22. It means the objective record and liability of punishment was paid in full without tainting Jesus' human nature, which is sinless and impeccable. Because of the union of the uh, two natures, Godhead and the manhood in one person, it's impossible for Jesus to be evil. It's impossible for Jesus to commit sin. And then let's look here briefly at the terms used to describe Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus refers to his coming death on the cross. Now, it's very interesting that although our Lord often, especially as the cross approached, he often spoke of his coming death to his disciples, his apostles. Yet the apostles did not really understand his teachings at that time. In fact, they were shocked and they were repelled by the idea. In Matthew 16, after Christ explains that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer, die, and be raised again, Peter rebukes him, saying, Far be it from Lord, you should, this shall not happen to you, 16.22. And of course, Jesus rebukes him very strongly. Get behind me, Satan. When Jesus dies on the cross, the disciples hide and they mourn. When the Savior comes out of the tomb, when they're told by the women, they don't believe it. They're shocked. They're surprised. They don't believe it until they see it for themselves. At least, at least most of them. Once our Lord is resurrected, their eyes are open. After Pentecost, they give us an inspired interpretation of what Christ accomplished. They had to unlearn the false theology of the Jews regarding the Messiah to understand the meaning and importance of Jesus' atoning death and his glorious resurrection. Christ's teaching in the gospel serves as a connecting link between the Old Testament types and prophecies and the New Testament-inspired interpretation. The apostles, once they have the Holy Spirit, and are guided into truth by divine inspiration. They explain the person and work of Christ in detail. The apostles testify to the Lord's atonement and resurrection as accomplished facts, and they clarify their meaning. The apostolic teaching puts a great emphasis upon the cross, the death, and the blood of Christ. So let us briefly look at these terms to better understand our Lord's atoning death. First, the cross. The fact that Jesus died on a cross tells us that his death was both judicial, it was an act, a judicial act, and that he was accursed. He was accursed by God to remove our curse. When Paul says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, Galatians 3.13, he alluded to the curse being hung on a, uh, the, uh, the person being cursed being hung on a tree. And that's a reference to the Old Testament law. He refers to the Old Testament practice, uh, the, the requirement in the law, where despicable criminals, after they're executed, they're hung up on, strung up on trees until the sun goes down, and then they have to be taken down before sundown. It's to intensify their punishment and turn, according to Scripture, God's fierce anger away from Israel. Numbers 25.4. 
as the law says, Deuteronomy 21:23, he who is hanged is accursed of God. So the cross involves intense prolonged suffering, it's judicial, and the process of bleeding out. His blood was poured out for the sheep. Okay, he died a bloody death, and that's deliberate. That's why the Old Testament sacrifices were blood sacrifices. Well, let's look at the expression blood. <clears throat> the New Testament focuses our attention on Christ's blood. His blood cleanses from all sin, 1 John 1, 7. It washes away our sins, Revelation 1, 5. We have redemption through his blood, Ephesians 1, 7. The blood of the cross establishes peace between believers and God, Colossians 1, 20. Christ's blood propitiates or removes God's wrath, Romans 3.25. The author of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, 9.22. There is no forgiveness of sins without the sacrifice. And it indicates that our Lord's death was a sacrificial death. To remove our guilt and establish peace with God, Jesus had to fulfill all the bloody types, the blood rituals of the Old Testament law. The law tells us that blood is the very essence of life. Hebrews 17, 10 to 11. There's a reason they couldn't have, they couldn't eat the animal with its blood. They weren't allowed to drink blood. The blood had to be drained because it symbolized life. Therefore, it is shed and spilled out to atone for the guilt of sin. He gave his life to give us life. The sacrificial shedding of Jesus' blood is symbolized in the Lord's Supper. Think about this next time we have the Lord's Supper. The bread which represents our Lord's body and the wine which symbolizes Christ's shed blood are separate. For the blood has been separated from the body by sacrifice. The wine that is poured into the cup refers to the bloody sacrificial death of Jesus in our place as our substitute. And then death. The Bible also teaches the importance and necessity of Jesus' death. The penalty for sin is death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. The soul that sins must die, Ezekiel 18.20. In the day, and the context, in the day you disobey and eat the forbidden fruit, you will surely die, Genesis 2.17. That's emphatic in Hebrew. Dying you shall die. It's most certain you shall die. Because the penalty for sin is death in a very broad manner, which includes spiritual and eternal death, a second death, Revelation 20, verse 6, 14, and 21, 8, Jesus had to endure the death penalty in our place. That's why he had to die. It wasn't enough that he suffer and bleed. He had to die. Consequently, our Lord became obedient to the point of death, Philippians 2, 8. Paul says we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, Romans 5.10. Through Christ's death, we have become dead to the law, Romans 7.4. Jesus delivered us from the, sent from the sentence of death, 2 Corinthians 1.9. Our Lord came for the suffering of death, Hebrews 2.9, to taste death for everyone, Hebrews 2.9. He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, Hebrews 9.15. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus, by his suffering, his bleeding out and his death, satisfied the requirements of God's justice. 
Jesus, by his own death, conquered death itself. The biblical use of cross, blood, and death all speak of Christ's vicarious suffering and death for the sheep, for his people, the elect. So the essence of Christ's atoning work is in his vicarious suffering, sacrificial bleeding out, and death. God's law and justice require that sinners suffer and die. All the suffering and misery of this world and hell itself is the reward for sin. The sting of death is the torments of hell. The second death. The second death is the intensification of suffering that sin merits. But Christ satisfied the penal obligations of the law by his sufferings. <clears throat> Christ's sufferings delivered his people from guilt. His sufferings procured the non-infliction of suffering upon the elect. So, remember those three terms, how important they are. Blood, death, suffering, atonement. Well, what did Christ's vicarious sacrifice accomplish? Now, given the fact that Jesus refers to laying down his life for or in the place of his people, this is a very good opportunity. We'll just do it briefly. This is, you know, I know you probably know this. Most of you know this, but uh, it's something that we need to know inside and out. We should have this all memorized. We need to discuss what his, this death accomplishes for believers, the sheep, the elect. And there are certain theological terms that every Christian should know and memorize to better understand our Lord's precious salvation. And I'll be brief. You're not supposed to have theology in sermons we're told today. That's complete nonsense. The whole Bible's theology. The first word is expiation. This word means that our Lord removes the guilt and penalty of sin. All the other terms flow from this foundation. You can't have propitiation and reconciliation without first having expiation. <coughs> There are many passages that discuss the removal of sin. Psalm 51 says, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop that I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. That's verses 2, 3, 7, and 9. Hebrews 1, 13, When he had himself purged our sins, sat down on the majesty on high. Hebrews 9, 26, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In Revelation 1, 5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. In John 1, 29, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Excuse me, that's Revelation 7, 14. They made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And then John 1, 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world cleansing, removal, covering. Your sins are as far from God as if they were put in the bottom of the sea. He remembers them no more. He holds them against you no more because Christ paid the price. Second, expiation has been completed by Christ. Jesus also achieved propitiation because our Lord achieved expiation by satisfying God's perfect justice. He removed God's anger against us. He propitiates God's wrath. And this word comes right out of Scripture, by the way. <clears throat> Hebrews 2.17, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest of things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
And this word is also used in Romans 3.25 and 1 John 2.2. God was angry with us for our sin and rebellion, and we were under his just condemnation and sentence of death in the most comprehensive sense. God didn't do anything bad against us, but we had sinned and rebelled against God. Those who do not believe have the wrath of God abiding on them. John 3.36. Also, see Romans 2, 5, 6, and 8. Psalm 7, 11, where it says God hates the workers of iniquity. God doesn't just hate your sin, he hates the workers of iniquity. Psalm 11, 5 to 6, Deuteronomy 4, 24. But once Jesus paid the price in full on the cross, eliminating our guilt and liability of punishment, the reason for God's wrath has been eliminated. He's no longer angry. The price has been paid in full. There's no reason for God to be angry. There is no more sin. There is no more guilt. There is no liability of punishment. His anger is gone. So Christ has established fellowship between God and believers and true Christians. Our penal suffering due to our guilt can only be released when it has been endured and paid for in full by a substitute. And this point is important because it is unique to biblical Christianity. <clears throat> like I said earlier, Judaism, the cults, various religions, turn over a new leaf. Tell God you're sorry. Lead a good life. God will overlook what you've done. No, it doesn't work that way. Your sins have to be paid for. They have to be washed away. God doesn't overlook sin because he can't. He's holy. He's righteous. He's an infinitely holy God. He can't just simply forget about sin and pretend it didn't happen. God does not merely overlook sin or arbitrarily erase it or pretend it never happened. He could not do such things, but they would violate his holy and righteous character. Instead, he sent Jesus to suffer, bleed out, and die in our place, so the penalty has been paid in full. Christ dealt with God's wrath on the cross so that we are no longer the objects of his wrath. It became dark for three hours. He was tortured by the Romans with scourging before he went to the cross. He suffered for over three hours in intense agony. He suffered the pain of hell in our place. God eliminated his anger because Christ paid, paid it in full. When God looks upon us in the day of judgment, he does not see our sin and guilt, but only the righteousness of Christ. So that's propitia, expiation, then propitiation, and then third, reconciliation. Our Lord achieved reconciliation. Since Jesus has removed our guilt and appeased God's wrath against us, he also reconciles us to God. <clears throat> Paul says that through Christ we were reconciled to God, Romans 5.10. 2 Corinthians 5.18, that God reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Uh, that's 18. Here's verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And Paul goes on to explain, we have a ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling an offended God with men. The Lord reconciles both Jews and Gentiles to God in one body through the cross. Ephesians 2.16. Before the fall, God and Adam had perfect fellowship. They had a good, loving, harmonious relationship. And they talked, and they walked in the garden. <clears throat> and when Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of the garden. Sin separates man from God. It brings real guilt. It merits death and hell. But once Christ removes the guilt and God's wrath, there is forgiveness, there is reconciliation, and a full restoration of fellowship with God. That's why we, whenever we pray, we pray through Christ. 
we approach God through the righteousness of Christ because we're unacceptable apart from Christ. When we worship God, we always do so through Christ. Only Jesus and his atoning death can restore us to a full favor with God. Yahweh has reconciled us to himself by the death of Christ. With our guilty record washed away, God is now propitious. He can now be just and yet justify the ungodly. See Romans 5, 6 to 10. And then the fourth thing Jesus achieved, and this will be the last one, is redemption. Redemption. These are all terms we need to know. When the Bible speaks of redemption wrought by Christ, it speaks of the securing release from the penalty and bondage of sin by the payment of a price. In the Old Testament, if you had a gore, if you had an ox and it gored somebody to death, it got, got out of your fence and killed somebody, you'd have to pay a ransom price so you wouldn't have to die. You'd pay a ransom price and then that would release you from the penalty. Well, Jesus does that for our sin and guilt. The price was nothing less than the shedding of the blood of the Lord by his suffering and death. Peter says that believers were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Paul exhorted the Ephesian elders to shepherd the church of God, <clears throat> which he purchased with his own blood, Acts 20, 28. And the apostle calls the church to sanctified living with the phrase, 1 Corinthians 6, 20, and repeated in 7, 23, you were bought at a price. This easy believism, this idea that we're saved so we can go out and sin and do as we please, that's complete, a complete satanic lie. You were bought with a price, with the precious blood of Christ. Now live and put Christ first in your life and don't lead a sinful lifestyle anymore. Follow Christ. Be a disciple of Christ. Scripture teaches that Christ came to earth to give us life as a ransom price for the elect. And this is uh, Matthew, excuse me, Mark 10.45. The Son of Man did, come, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There's that word. Galatians 4, 4-5, Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Titus 2, 14, our Lord gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Ephesians 1, 7, in him you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And see Colossians 1, 14, which does something similar. Thus the saints in heaven sing, Revelation 5, 9. You were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. And John Murray says this. <clears throat> there can be no question but then but the death of Christ and all its implications as a consequence of his vicarious identification with our sins is that which redeems and redeems in the way that is required by and appropriate to the redemptive concept, namely the ransom price. Why do you go to heaven? Christ paid the price in full. Why do you go to heaven? Jesus washed away your sins by his blood. Why do you go to heaven? Because Jesus removed your sins, expiated them. Why is God no longer angry with you? Because Jesus propitiates the wrath of God by his perfect sacrifice. These things are incredible, amazing concepts that are absolutely true. They're in scripture. They're taught throughout the whole Bible. And you don't find anything like us in any other religion. This is the only true religion. This is the only way to go to heaven. You need to know these things. And then we'll finish with our verse. In verse 11, we are told that Jesus gives his life for the sheep. This is one of the many passages which define the nature and the extent of the atonement. Our Lord did not die for the false shepherds or for the goats 
or men in general, or all men without exception, but only for the sheep, his people. And this is the doctrine of definite, or I hate the term, but it's used, limited atonement, because it's not limited in power, it's only limited in extent. Christ did not shed one drop of blood for those who reject him and go to hell. This doctrine is one of the clearest teachings of Scripture, even though it's rejected by most professing Christians today. It used to be pretty much universal. It's called Augustinianism. Some call it Calvinism. That's its nickname, unfortunately, but it's simply the gospel. Matthew 121, his name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not he'll make salvation possible if you cooperate with grace. No, he will save his people from their sins. John 6, 37 and 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should, not, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. So the people chosen by the Father who are a love gift to the Son and the covenant of redemption in heaven before the foundation of the world, these people will be saved. Not one will be lost. That's what it says. It's very clear. This teaches that every single person chosen by God will most certainly come to Christ with true faith, and not one will be lost. All shall receive the resurrection unto life. Now, this, of course, is a passage that presents great difficulties to Arminians, that is, those who believe that Christ died for all men throughout the whole world, Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, Charles Manson, everybody throughout history, uh, even though the vast majority of those people will go to hell. Uh, that's Arminianism. And it's up to man to make this, the death of the cross effective by, by an uh, autonomous act of the human will. So they, they deny the bondage of the will. They deny total depravity. The great Lutheran scholar, <clears throat> R.C.H. Linsky, who, who's wonderful, I have his commentary, it's excellent, seeks to avoid the obvious meaning of this text by saying this. He says that, quote, the sacrifice of Jesus, which is for the world and all men, without ex and by that he means without exception, is viewed with reference to its actual final result, result which appears in the saved. So how do you get around Arminianism? Well, that's how you do it. You insert something in the text that is not there, that is purely arbitrary. And when you have a system of theology where you have to start inserting things into the text, which is called eisegesis, not exegesis, you get a problem. The problem with this view that is that it is arbitrary, it's not found in the text, and it contradicts the immediate context. There's nothing in the passage limited, limiting Christ's atoning sacrifice only to the result, or to those who actually choose it. Jesus offers an atoning, saving sacrifice for his people. Period. He removes or expiates sin, eliminates the wrath and judgment of God, propitiation. He reconciles God to his people, establishing perfect fellowship and friendship, reconciliation. He pays the penalty in full redemption, and thus rescues his people from Satan's sin and death. And not only that, the efficacy or power of union with him in his death and resurrection is the source, foundation, or basis of regeneration of the new birth. So Jesus not only accomplished the foundation of salvation, he accomplished the application of salvation as our high priest. See Ephesians 2, 2, 2, 4 to 5 and 8, John 3, 3 and 6, Colossians 2, 13. 
which teaches that regeneration and saving faith are gifts of God. You don't generate your own faith. God gives it to you. Now, it becomes your faith. You believe. God doesn't believe in your place, but it is a gift. To argue that our Lord does all these amazing saving things for everyone without exception, but they are really only possessed by those who make a choice of their own free will, denies the meaning of the atonement, saying that Jesus only made salvation possible. And this is the question. Does Jesus save or not? Does he make salvation possible and most people go to hell? Or does he actually save some people from every nation? According uh, to their view, his sacrificial death did not actually guarantee the salvation of anyone in particular. Such thinking is syncretism with humanism and turns faith into a work instead of a gift of grace. You're saved because of faith, not through faith as a gift. And you have something to boast of. I went and heard a gospel sermon with my friend Bob. Bob didn't believe. He didn't have the wisdom and, and tenderness of heart to understand the truth. But I did. You have something to boast of. I'm saved because of my faith. Bob didn't have that faith. He didn't generate his own faith. No. You have faith because God gave you the faith. You don't get to take credit for it. It also asserts a great injustice in that Jesus paid the price in full, that's what redemption means, at the cross, eliminating all sin and guilt, expiation. But most people for whom our Lord died must also suffer for the same sins in hell because they could not generate their own autonomous faith. And what we looked at the word propitiation, it removes God's wrath. Well, if it removes God's wrath, why are those people in hell? If Christ paid the price for every sin, and unbelief is a sin, why are there people in hell? See, it doesn't make any sense. The efficacy of the cross and empty tomb is denied, as well as the true effect of the fall on man's heart and will. Total depravity. Ephesians chapter 1, we're dead in trespasses and sins. chapter 2, we're dead in trespasses and sins. We don't have the ability to believe apart from a supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit in our heart giving us open eyes, illumination, regeneration, and faith. In their view, Jesus takes a distant second place to man's supposedly free will. But Scripture says, Romans 9.16, So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, It's not of your free will, it's not of good works, but of God who shows mercy. That's what makes a difference. John 1.13, who are born, not of blood, not because you're a Jew, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And thus Jesus said, John 15.16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. John 8, uh, 43.40, Without me, you can do nothing. John 8, 43 to 44, Jesus speaking to his enemies. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desire of your father you want to do. And Romans 8, 8. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. And I would have, uh, of course he's long gone, uh, Lenski, I would have him listen to Martin Luther. Uh, Lutheranism denies the teaching of Luther, by the way, modern Lutheranism. Luther says this in The Bondage of the Will. Let the guardian of, this is Luther, quote, let the guardian of free will soon answer the following question. 
How can endeavors towards spiritual good be made by that which is death and displeases God and is enmity against God and disobeys God and cannot obey him? That's an excellent question, isn't it? And then finally, that Juris 11 speaks of Jesus giving his life for the elect or only those chosen by the Father is also proved by verses 14 through 16. Listen to this. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. <clears throat> As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Okay, he's talking about the Gentiles. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. Did you hear that? They will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Four times in these two verses, the word know is used, which refers to a, the Hebraistic use of the word know is different than our word know. Uh, it refers to an intimate relationship and loving fellowship. In Romans 8.29, the foreknowledge of God is the basis of predestination, those whom God loved beforehand. There is a distinct body of people loved and chosen by God who will believe, obey Christ, and be part of the invisible church. The shepherd most certainly loves and saves the one flock. If one accepts the Arminian position, then one must teach that Jesus died for millions of people, that he does not love with a special saving love, and has no intention of really saving them by applying the efficacy of his atoning death and resurrection to them. That's crazy. Either Christ saves, or has the power to save, or he doesn't. Arminianism represent, presents Christ as either unable to save, in other words, the cross and empty tomb cannot actually save, or, or as incompetent or contradictory in purpose. The idea that Jesus cannot save those he really wants to save or that he dies for people who he knows will go to hell, denies the power and the wisdom of God. It contradicts both theology and logic. You know, it sounds nice. Christ loves everybody. Yeah, he died. he's trying to save everybody in the whole world. Adolf Hitler, Joe Stalin, Charles Manson, serial killers that are unrepentant. No. No. <laughs> Christ died for the sheep. And only for the sheep. Now, that may be tough for you to accept. You may have been taught Arminianism your whole life. I remember when I first heard it, I was completely shocked. I read it in B.B. Warfield's The Plan of Salvation. I read that book twice very carefully, and I looked up all the scriptures. I read them carefully. You can't get around the fact that Christ actually saves a people. And he saves the people that God chose before the foundation of the world in him, and they are the love gift to him. You can't get around that. Christ died for the sheep. So if you're not a Christian, or if you've been believing in Arminian heresies, now's the time to repent. Look to Christ! Dying, expiating sin, propitiating God's wrath, reconciling us to God, redeeming us by his blood. Look to him! Lay down the weapons of your warfare. Bow the knee to Christ now. Receive him as your Savior. Believe in him. Trust in him. You will not be ashamed to do so. It'll be the most important act, the most important thing you do in your whole life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. The work of Christ is indeed amazing, mind-boggling. We bow the knee to him as our Lord and Savior. And Lord, when we look at what he's done for us, 
We beg you, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit to bend our hearts so we would be more obedient, more appreciative, more loving toward him. That we would walk according to your moral statutes and be serious about the things of God. Lord, make us faithful disciples. Make us covenant keepers. Cause us to love your son more every day and never take him for granted. In Jesus' name, amen.